episode 127, Stephen Shedletsky. Hey, it's Nikki Llewellyn and you're on Gut Plus Science. This podcast is on a mission to increase engagement at work. And on this show, we equip CEOs and people first leaders of all levels to make impact. Let's get to it. Today's guest wakes up every day to engage with people in meaningful ways, connect with depth, and live and inspire a more fulfilled world. These are words found nearly verbatim in his bio, so you'll see why putting those pieces together. He's on Gut Plus Science today. Steven Shedletsky, aka Shed, supports humble leaders, those who know that they are both part of problems they experience and a part of the solutions they create, those who intend to put their people and purpose first. He is a speaker, thought leader, executive coach, and advisor, and we get to share time with him today and hear all about his jam. Today, we're talking about how to create a speak up culture. It's fire. Let's go. All right, Shed, welcome to Gut Plus Science, and we're going to talk today about how to create a speak-up culture. But first, I want to know what that means to you, or how do you define speak-up culture? So one of the things I've been quite active, and hi, Nikki, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here right as we hop into it. I've been part of the return to office conversation. Some people are calling it return to work. I mean, what do you think we've been doing for the past two years? We've still been working. Uh, And so I like this notion of return to office. And yet so many people don't want to return to office, not because of the office, but because of toxic places to work. And by toxic places to work, I mean, places that when you go into work, you actually feel as though you're a worse person. A speak-up culture is the opposite. A speak-up culture is an environment in which you feel that it is worth the risk to speak up, to share of your best ideas, to share of things that aren't working or things that could be working better, or even to dissent, to say to someone who might have more authority than you that you don't agree or you see it differently, and that you'll actually be rewarded. You will be listened to, acknowledged, and rewarded for that behavior. If leaders ignore or punish people for speaking up, for sharing of their ideas or their concerns, you will successfully bring to life the Andy Stanley quote, which is one of my favorites, that leaders who do not listen will eventually be surrounded by people who have nothing to say, which is the kiss of death for any organization. So good to open with. And, you know, I don't know what the quote is necessarily, but I've said so many times when you have someone that's like on fire for their work, they're typically like very engaged in conversation. And when they go silent, there is a major problem. And I think this is the epitome of that. You know, when you you have a culture that silences people that are typically engaged, you know, so I'm, I'm excited to dive into this today and really get some key takeaways for leaders to consider in further developing their speak up culture, just like starting on the journey. I want to open a soapbox though. I think here, I'm pretty sure it's going to be a soapbox is I want to talk about toxic leadership behaviors really all of them, but particularly the ones that are often overlooked. There's the obvious toxic ones, which are demeaning and yelling. I just don't think that there's a place for that. I mean, one in society in which it's too pervasive, quite frankly, and we can have a conversation of how we can actually combat that. The answer is building genuine relationship. My favorite uh, one of my favorite African proverbs is, when I saw you from afar, I thought you were a monster. When you came closer, I thought you were an animal. When you came closer, I realized you were a human being. And when we were eye to eye, I realized that you were my brother or my sister. 
I think so often any of the issues in society and our organizations of us versus them can be solved with genuine relationship. And I've never heard of any uh, relationship that got, I've never heard of any relationship that improved with less communication. So th those are the obvious ones, but there's, there's something that, that I've learned about. I've learned about it through Susan David's work. She's the author of Emotional Agility, and she's introduced to me this, uh, this concept of toxic positivity, which is so interesting. Toxic positivity is this notion that we can have good vibes only, the, a culture where we can only talk about the future and we can only talk about good things. We don't want to relive the past. We don't want to hash out bad things or hard things. What toxic positivity does is it denies people of having negative emotions. Now, here's the thing. If you're a human being, you have those. And if you show up to work or live in a place in which it is not okay to have certain emotions, what we resist persists. So I think one of the biggest sort of interesting sort of subtle ones is this notion of toxic positivity and that we need to allow our people and leaders need to even meet their people in the hard emotions. Like if people were laid off or if the business has been through a hard time or if there's something hard that's going on in, in society right now, I think we need to, to create safe environments where all of those emotions are welcome and that we can cry and that we can be sad and that we can be frustrated and angry. Because if we deny people having those emotions at work, it's not going to be pretty for too long. Many people talk today about humanizing the workplace. You hear that a lot. And I think toxic positivity is the opposite of that. And so if we break down, you know, what is an example of, you know, you have your, whether you're remote or possibly live with your team, you have your weekly or biweekly meeting. Give us an example of something that would happen as part of that agenda that illustrates like we don't do this toxic positivity thing. First and foremost, the form of work is shifting. So are you virtual? Are you hybrid? Are you in office? And I think there are different levers and things that can be done in all of those settings. Um, the thing that we've been missing in virtual work is serendipity. And serendipity is so often where we build relationship. You and me during a coffee break go to the muffin table and we both go grab a cranberry muffin. Nikki, you like cranberries too? Like, oh my God. And we have this great conversation. And then I know you as Nikki, the cranberry muffin lady, and you know me as Stephen, the cranberry muffin man. But we have this like relationship. We're missing out on those opportunities when we are hybrid um, and when we are virtual, when we are virtual, there are opportunities like use the chat. Everyone pop a word in that uh, shares in a word or a phrase how they're feeling. I've seen teams use particular technologies like uh, there's a, a technology called Lupin where you're allowed to sort of do an emotional check in with your team. Or I've even seen teams bust out uh, physical colored cards, then in their morning check-in or their Monday morning meeting, they flash a card to let people know how they're feeling. And then the leaders among us take note of how people are feeling, and then we know who to give a call, who to send a text to, who to set up a coffee or a walking meeting with. And so I think we need to, you know, first and foremost, before we dive in and just do the work, I think there's often great opportunity for check-in and relationship building. And how can we use technology as our friend and not our foe? Because though technology is wonderfully and hugely powerful, it does miss on the human elements of body language, which is really important. And so how do we 
actually manufacture that serendipity, particularly when we're in hybrid and virtual. And I wanted to give just a quick example, shout out to a tech company that I used to work with and the sales manager, he ran a team of maybe 15 people. And as part of their weekly agenda, they would address what sucked last week. And then they would break down what they could just like share on just like this happened, like this deal fell through or whatever happened. But then there was other things that's like the accountability muscle wasn't there. So he would like disseminate, where did we push through? Cause we needed to. And over here, man, that just sucks. And we're going to move on, but like acknowledging that. And so I, when you were sharing that, I was, I was thinking of what Adam used to do with that sales team. And I always thought it was so unique and just so real, really humanized that sales team. And I, I don't remember any turnover. I worked with that team for like two years. I don't remember any turnover. So just a really, really cool thing. So any other just kind of often overlooked toxic leadership behaviors that come to mind? Well, it dovetails really nicely to what you just said, which is when leaders focus too much on outputs and results and not inputs. And let's face it, um, we cannot control our results. All we can do is control our inputs. So I'll tell a quick sort of story. A friend of mine, when he was you know, very junior during um, holiday season, he and a, another junior person were both in the office and they were preparing a client pitch. And they were sort of, you know, uh, getting the quote unquote war room together, putting up all the materials, making, you know, certain slides and materials available. They had nothing to do and they were twiddling their, their thumbs sitting in the office. And so they said, hey, let's just do more of the work. Let's prepare the, the slide deck. Let's just do what the senior people would do. Let's just do it. Uh, let's just take the initiative simply because what else are we going to do? Everyone came back after holidays to the office. They shared uh, sort of the work that they had done. They said, wow, this is great work. They actually used that particular pitch with the client and they didn't get the business. And my friend got a promotion. And the reason that he got a promotion and his, his peer got a promotion as well is because of the inputs and the behaviors. Even though they didn't get the result, they didn't win the business, if they continue to do that type of behavior, they are more likely to continue to win business over the long term. And so I think we need to balance um, that the way we get outputs is through inputs and how can we reward our leaders and our people for their inputs because we get the behavior that we reward and we get the behavior that we tolerate. And if we punish people for results or outputs that are literally outside of our control, I mean, there's a difference for a sports team. There's a difference between losing and getting beat. When you're beat, it's because the other team just totally outperformed you. I mean, you played great, but they like earned a win. When you lose, it's because you did things wrong and you should have done them better and you could have won. And so if you get beat, you just tip tip your hat, focus on all the inputs you can continue to do. And over time, if you get the inputs right, the outputs will take care of themselves. So we spoke about humanizing the workplace. Let's do another buzzword for a minute. And that is supporting the whole human. So let's talk about both sides of like in a speak up culture that looks like this typically overlooked, you know, trying to be, but not really authentically showing up looks like this. You know, we've all heard the term work-life balance and I don't like the term because it then denotes that it's a scale and that work and life are on opposing scales. That is not the case. And I think we've felt that more than ever through the pandemic and for the vast majority of us working from home. I mean, the only difference from work and home was maybe the chair we were sitting in and if we were wearing pants or not. So I am a big proponent and fan of work-life integration and work-life harmony. 
you know, do you love who you can be when you're working? Do you love who you can be and who you are when you're in your life? If you don't, you're out of integrity or balance in one or both of those places. And so I think we've seen a shift to realizing now more than ever that human beings have lives outside of work that matter and stuff happens with family and friends, health concerns, things that are far more important than work. And how as organizations and leaders, do we allow that flexibility, time and space? And what I've seen is that when you lower a bar and lower a ceiling for people, they hit it. When you raise a bar and raise a ceiling for people and extend trust to them, they earn it and they hit that too. And so I think for leaders, if we if we already make our people wrong, they will prove to us that we're right and they're wrong. If we make our people right, they will more often than not prove to us that indeed we were right to take a risk on them. I mean, people want to be challenged. People want to feel as though they're trusted and that they matter. And I think that's a big part of what it means to support an entire human being uh, in their progression and their career and their real life that often happens <laughs> during the hours of nine to five, let alone beyond the hours of nine to five as well. I love to say, you know, in these like different buzzword initiatives that can be really amazing things inside the workplace, whether we call it like supporting the whole human or I love your integration or harmony, the work-life integration or harmony, are we checking the box or are we making impact? And it's like checking the boxes, you know, our HR system has a way that you can submit this and you get a message from your manager that says, I saw that you submitted this time off. Let me know if I can do anything to support you. Well, what do you say? I mean, it's like anytime someone says when you got a challenging thing and you've got to handle, it's like, let me do what I can do, whatever I can do to support you. But does anything ever really come of that? It's just like kind of a nice thing to say. Nothing really happens versus a way of supporting. For example, I've got a friend that runs a amazing mentoring company that supports everything from mentors on a level of professional development to mentor support for issues of life situations or challenges that happen that you can learn through someone else to just support that something they've gone through, right? That's real. That's making an impact. So I just, I like to challenge people. I'm like, are you checking the box? Yeah, you got it. But, or, or do you really have a program that makes an impact or a system that makes an impact? So glad you shared that. There's a reason things are a buzzword. It's because it's common sense, pervasive things that we ought to be doing, but you can do it to your point as a performative action as in, yeah, we have a DEI initiative, box check. <laughs> or yeah, we, we have a purpose. I mean, I, I was working in purpose, Nikki, 13 years ago when it wasn't cool. Um, and now everyone and their mothers seems to have a purpose statement. And so culture is not simply words on the wall. Culture is what's lived in the halls or in Zoom breakout rooms. And so, you know, I think we need to take these buzzwords. What do they mean to us, are they actually a representation of our values and beliefs? And then how do we meaningfully action on it? Uh, my, my favorite equation for culture is culture equals values multiplied by behavior to the power of authority. Because the more authority you have in an organization, the louder your whisper is. Ooh, say that again. Culture equals values times behavior to the power of authority. So values are do you have values? Like it's important to have values and to define them. If you don't have values, well, then your value score is low. Behaviors, that is the most important and it's, it's multiplied by behavior. So if you have values, but you don't live them or worse, if you have values, but you don't live them, anything multiplied by a negative is actually a negative. So you could have a deleterious toxic culture if you say you have values, but don't live it. 
And then this notion of to the power of authority, meaning that if, if I'm a junior person and I'm not living or behaving the values to which we define our culture, not as big of a deal if I were a VP director or the CEO. That's a big deal. So the more senior you are in an organization, the more weight that you bear on the impact of the culture. Thank you for sharing that. So Shed, humility is a key trait in people forward type leaders. And we've hit on humility on different episodes throughout Gut Plus Science, but I know you are passionate about inspiring humility, like true humility. And I want to go down this path. So let's start with you telling us a story about a leader that has built the humble muscle and shows up taking ownership in regular practice. Just illustrate for us like the standout difference in this human. I love supporting humble leaders. It's it's the leaders that I will run through brick walls with and for. And the way I define a humble leader is one who is willing to see and entertain that they are at least a part of the problems that they experience and the solutions that they can create, both a humility and a growth mindset. If you aren't willing to look at yourself and, and you're only, your default is to point your fingers and blame others, I just, I don't really want to work or support you leadership is in is the willingness to look at oneself. So, you know, it's not to take all the responsibility. I think leaders also inspire others to take responsibility and accountability, but leaders give away credit and when things go right and and take the blame and take responsibility when things don't go right. If you do anything other than that, you may have the title, but you are not a leader. Two particular leaders come to mind. One is a is a good friend of mine who works for a sports retailer that we all know. And he has worked in supply chain for many years, and he knows nothing about supply chain, which I love. Some of the best leaders that I've met literally lead people in domains that they have little to no experience in. And I love it because these leaders actually have to go to their people and say, I've been promoted into a role where I am unfit to do the job that you do. Ergo, my responsibility is to understand your job, is to have you teach me, and then my job is to help get blocks out of the way. Uh, my job is to help support you. That's a true people leader. So one fun example is my friend Andrew, who literally isn't equipped to do the job that the vast majority of the people he leads does. And I love that because it forces you to have to take a posture of humility. So that's one example. Uh, and another more famous example, and I, I don't think we need to conflate humility with meekness. Uh, I think you can both be humble and confident. I don't think that you can be humble and arrogant. <laughs> arrogant is the belief that you're a master and expert and that you're better than everyone else. And it's quite unflattering. And the antidote to arrogance is, is feedback. It's candor with care from people that you trust who are willing to let you know, hey, you kind of just showed up arrogant there. Um, and if it triggers you on the receiving end, it means that it's probably true. Confident is a is a student mindset, and it's a belief that you're good, but you can always get better. And so I think you can both be humble and confident. And one of those examples for me is a retired uh, U.S. Navy nuclear-powered sub-captain, David Marquet, who wrote the book Turn the Ship Around. And it's a brilliant book and example, and you can Google it and, and listen to the story of, again, someone who was put in a position where the way they were trained to lead didn't fit the context that they were in. And Captain Marquet had no other choice than to move his authority 
to more junior people to where the information lived. And it forced him to actually become a humble leader. He had no other choice. So Shed, what would you peg as the first step in coaching humility and leadership? Interesting. When you say that, the initial thought that comes to mind is my friend Rich Devinney just came out with a book this year called The Attributes. And Rich, who's a retired Navy SEAL, he led training and development for the SEALs for many years. He distinguishes in his book the difference between a skill and an attribute. A skill is something that is not inherent to our nature. It is something that we can learn and teach others. And skills are easy to test, measure, and assess. Skills are things like riding a bike, shooting a gun. Like Rich, Rich could take me to a, to a range and in two hours teach me how to shoot a, shoot a bullseye. That's a skill. If you can teach it or you can learn it, it's a skill. Listening is a skill. You can sit through a two-hour class on listening and actually learn skills to become a better listener. But an attribute is inherent to our nature. It tells us uh, how we will behave in certain situations, how we'll respond, and it's harder to test, measure, and assess. While listening is a skill, compassion or empathy, or dare I say humility, I think is an attribute. Like I, I can't send you, Nikki, to a, to a, a two-hour class on how to be more humble and you leave that class with greater humility. I think you have to want to develop that skill as an individual and see the merit of it to put yourself in situations where you can raise the the dimmer switch on your own humility. So I don't think you can coach anyone to acquire any attribute. They have to want to go on that journey. They have to want to choose to transform and have a meaningful enough experience in their life or career that says, huh, I should work on my humility. Oh, that's so good. I feel like we're getting deep here and I was going to move on to my next question that I'm excited about, but I want to take a step back. What do you think is a possible or what have you seen? What is the tipping point that makes them want to take ownership? What have you seen? Well, when you finally realize that the way you've been operating is no longer going to serve you in the future. My good friend, Kristen Hadid, who's the author of the book, Permission to Screw Up, when she was a very young leader, literally 65 of her team members quit on her in, on the first day because she showed up as a boss in charge above them as opposed to a leader. And that day when all of her team quit on her in one day, she literally bought them pizza, said, can I please try to win you back? And they said, fine. And she said, I, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I don't know how to do this thing called leadership. I, I need you. I need your, your, your support. She was leading um, a student cleaning company. They were cleaning out student dormitories in the, in the Floridian heat in the summer. And the next day, instead of her being in her air-conditioned clubhouse eating her uh, ordered-in salad for lunch, she was literally scrubbing toilets with her team and rooting them on and cheerleading them and being a support. And so I, I think in order for a boss to transform into a leader, I think they need to have you know a watershed moment where they realize what's gotten me here won't get me there. I, I may have gotten a promotion to this role because of my results or my drive to this point, but if I stay in charge... I will lose 
the respect of my people. This is another rich divinityism. Leaders are not born. Leaders are not made. Leaders are chosen. We choose our leaders based upon the way they behave. And leadership has nothing to do with title. Leadership has everything to do with behaviors. Do you behave in a way that means I trust that you have my best interests at heart and in mind? Do I want to go where you're taking me and where you're going? So my question that I was going to ask before I took a step back was, you know, what's a popular sharpening step or like habit reiteration in building humble leaders, those that are on the journey, the things that you see them constantly working on? I mean, a nice mantra would be, I am as human as my people are. I am not better than them. I simply have the awesome responsibility of being in charge. And it's my responsibility to listen, to do right by them and see that they grow. I think to remind yourself that you are not holier than thou. If you are, I hate to tell you, that is a supremacist behavior. If you feel as though you are supreme over another, you are a supremacist. And that's not what leaders do. Leaders feel thankful. They know that their people have a choice and they work every day to ensure that their people continue to choose to be there. It's the same way that like I strive to show up for my life partner, my wife, like she's made a choice. <laughs> I want to attempt to show her that it was the right choice. And I don't nail it every day and every moment. But when I know I don't nail it, I try to own my part in the equation, tell her what's going on with me and why I just behave like such an idiot, probably a selfish idiot that was more like a teenager rather than the adult that I'm supposed to be. So I, I think that's what leaders strive to do is they strive to own their their impact. My first thought when I asked you that, I was wondering, like, what would I say? My first thought around sharpening the humble muscle is the ability to take feedback and be open to it. Like one is be open to it, to a place that your people just feel like they can share that with you and that you take it and receive it and just like absorb that. And people see the change because of what you shared or just the acknowledgement. And I, I mean, I don't know if I had to guess on the stats of the number of leaders that are really, truly open one, but then two, take it and then show their people that they're embracing that. It's very rare. It's very rare. And I think that that is like totally a speak up culture. So you just nailed the two components, and this is proven in research. In research, they call it openness and responsiveness. There are two components to a speak-up culture coming coming full circle to where, where we started. So one is people feel that it is worth it to take the risk to speak up, and then when they do dare take that risk, they are rewarded. They are, they are responded to. If one of those two pieces are missing, you don't have a speak-up culture. You need both. And if you do just the first... And then people do speak up and you ignore or punish them, you won't have a speak up culture. It'll stop there. Let's talk about self-awareness because, you know, I wanted to really go down the path of intention is not enough. So how do you encourage leaders to see the reality or to see, you know, the things that are being overlooked so that they're really taking action on the things that make impact? So I've learned that, you know, there's often a difference between our intention and our impact. And the leaders among us take ownership and responsibility for their impact, regardless of if it's intended or not. I'm thinking of a specific, I was invited in to, to join a team early on in the, in the pandemic. Uh, it was right after the death of George Floyd. And I made a comment around, I, I remember I said, Somebody asked me something and I, I responded with, uh, in the context of a team, that we suffer alone, we struggle together. And I happened to say that to someone who had white skin 
who agreed with me. And it was like a moment of resonance and like, yes, good. There were minorities and people of color in that room as well who spoke up and actually like called it racist and said that it was insensitive and that there are people who are oppressed in society. Now, I had a choice. I could have said, no, 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 like you're wrong. That's not what I meant, which meant I would have ostracized their opinion. Or I could say, huh, I've had an unintended impact here. Please tell me more. And that's what I did. I met them in that moment with curiosity. I could tell that I offended them. It was not my intention. I've been trying to learn more about how I can help combat racism and help create a more just and equal society for all. And here was a great opportunity for me to learn in the moment. And because I didn't make them wrong, because I took responsibility for the impact I had, we ended up having a transformative conversation where I got to learn so much. I ended up saying that wasn't the way I intended for, for it to come across, but it came across that way and you received it that way. So let's dig in. I ended up being able to grow so much in that experience. And I'm quite frankly, so proud to be have a relationship with an organization like that where the executive director was on that meeting and this person felt safe enough to speak up and they were awarded for that behavior, not punished. And then look at the domino effect of your mentorship from that feedback. You're sharing that with others, uh, that exact story. So that's, that is awesome. Shed, we've got just enough time to squeeze in a shedism. That's what I'm going to call it. You have a saying called listen down. So tell us more about that. We've all heard someone in charge, whether they're a boss, a sports coach, a parent, say, listen up. I've said listen up <laughs> to my kids before. And listen up is a command. And sometimes listen up is appropriate. My experience of what great leaders do is they actively listen down. And that's how they create a speak up culture. And for people who say like, listen down, isn't that authoritative or, you know, patriarchal? It's like, well, sorry, as a leader, when you walk in the room, we treat you differently. A whisper is a shout. And so my experience of what great leaders do is they go out of their way to listen down such that people, again, feel that it's worth it to speak up. And when they do speak up, they are listened to, acknowledged, and rewarded, which means we get people's best ideas. We hear about what's working well and what could be improved. Uh, and we can actually make a high-performing team and a high-performing organization when leaders actually take the time to listen to the very people who are closest to the work closest to the problems and closest to the opportunities. Yeah, this was awesome. And I have so many gaps in my notes. So either we're going to stay on after our recording time today, or I'm going to have to go back and listen to this recording so that I can fill in the blanks because there's just so much good here. And I'm excited that um, we have a follow-up offering. You know, People Forward Network is starting to offer these community events for leaders that are on a, a people-first journey. We call it People Forward. So really excited about what's to come with you doing some stuff with us, and I can't wait to attend. So there's going to be so much more, but um, look forward to going back and listening to this myself. It was really a joyful time. And I'm going to take just a quick break. We'll hear from our sponsor message today, and we'll come back to our lightning round where on Gut Plus Science, we just spend a couple minutes learning more about our guests. So we'll be right back. Gut Plus Science has just joined the People Forward Network. Gut Plus Science has been on a journey for three and a half years, and we got inspired to create a global podcast network that captures the most incredible efforts 
of people-first leaders and humans working on a meaningful mission. We believe that the workplace is the largest mission field for change, and the People Forward Network is the largest community of humans on a shared journey to live life full of meaning. We'd love for you to join the People Forward Network. There are all kinds of new shows and existing shows coming together under one umbrella to bring you the best content as a community on a mission. Can't wait for you to join us. See the link to peopleforwardnetwork.com in the show notes. All right, we're back on Gut Plus Science and Shed is here with me to answer some lightning round questions. So I know this has got to be a little bit of a tough one. If you had to pick one book, just one, your favorite of all time or a favorite recent read, what would you pick? My favorite recent read is Primed to Perform by Neil Doshi and Lindsay McGregor, where they unpack total motivation. And Shed, what's your favorite hobby when you're not working? Playing baseball. And then what is your favorite vacation spot? Uh, Wherever my family is. And how can listeners connect with you after the show today? I'm pretty sure I'm the only Stephen Jaletsky in the world for the time being. So if you search my name, you can find me on all the things I'm most active on LinkedIn. Well, as I said in the beginning, this episode was going to be fire. It was fire. So much passion and energy and just someone that is so convicted to their mission. Great. Shed, I love this. Here's my truth you can act on today. Number one, eliminate toxic positivity. So first of all, we have to know what that is. And you know the whole concept of like, just stick with it and read a positive quote and overcome or you know, everything happens for a reason and just trying to overcome and get past something versus feel it. So people in a culture where they're hiding emotions and ignoring problems and dismissing other people's feelings, all of that, that's toxic positivity and we need that to go. Number two, celebrate behaviors, not so much the results. So I want to step up and say, I need to work on this myself. I know that behaviors in my activity leads to results. I know that, but sometimes I focus so much on the end result and get worn down on all of the effort uh, when the results aren't coming as fast. And so this is such a great takeaway. Uh, Celebrate the behaviors. Gosh, if you have Slack, you could do that every single day figuring out, you know, what platform and how to do that is the next step. Number three, remember work-life integration and harmony, like the vibe, the energy is key. It's not work-life balance. You don't look at your life wheel and say, everything is going to be equally balanced and I'm going to rate the same numbers for how I feel in each space. No, it's it's really the energy that you're feeling, that that integration and harmony of, of work and life is really the focus. There's so many other key takeaways, but those were just a couple that were like, wow, incredible. Another great episode, guys. We'll see you next time. Thanks again, Chad. We just left the world a little bit better. Now go do something with it.